Two, one. I think it's time that we start the conversation to silence the shame. Silence the shame. Si- silence the shame. Silence is the difference between treatment or pain, life or death. Silence the shame. Speak up now and silence. 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 Silence the shame. A few more people coming in. Welcome, ladies. Come on in. You can leave that green jumpsuit after the panel. I would love to have that in my wardrobe, even though I'm short and jumpsuits don't work that well. But you're wearing that tonight, girl. Hello again. My name is Shanti Das. I'm the founder of the Silence to Shame. It was a movement, but now I'm proud to say it's a foundation. Um, yes. Yes. God is good. Um, so to give you a little bit of background information on myself, um, I started in the entertainment industry. I'm a native of Atlanta, and I had the pleasure of working with some amazing artists like Usher and Outkast and Tony Braxton and TLC to say the least, and I had a really storied career, and I say that in the most humble way. I had an awesome career in entertainment, Um, but my dad took his own life when I was seven months old, and I never really got over that, and more importantly, we never dealt with it as a family, because you know how it is sometimes in our community, we don't talk about that kind of stuff, right? And so once I started experiencing severe depression probably in the last five or six years, but really more so, I think Well, I know it started many years ago, even when I was living in New York City, but I didn't know what to call it, and I didn't understand it. Um, And that happens a lot in our community. Things happen, you know, we have these different thoughts, changes in our body, and we don't know what to call it, and we don't know what to do with it. And rather than deal with it head on, we just kind of ignore it and go on about our business, you know. And so I was a high-functioning person with depression, and so I'll make this quick, but You know, in 2014, my best friend took her own life. And a lot of you guys know this story. For those of you that don't, that really knocked me on my back. And I blamed myself for a very long time. So that was a very traumatic experience in my life. And so, you know, the theme of tonight's conversation is trauma in the black community. And I just want to thank Ryan and um, everyone from the gathering spot um, for working with us. Last year, we did our first state of our emotional health and it was around suicide in the black community. And so gave Ryan a call and his team and they graciously said, of course, you know, we will allow you to have this conversation in our our facility. And so again, we're just happy to be here tonight. It's so much going on in our country right now. And I think this conversation and topic is very timely. So I ask that, you know, feel free to tweet out, um, you know, any video content, anything that you hear from our esteemed panelists, please use the hashtag silence the shame. You can follow us on Instagram at Silence of Shame, and you can follow this venue at ATL Gathers. I mean, just join the conversation so we can have people outside of this room, right, in your families, in your other communities, uh, joining in on what we're doing tonight. And we are filming the panel, and it will be up on our YouTube page before the end of the month as we continue to highlight minority mental health. And we're not just going to talk about it in July, but they gave us a month, so we're going to do our part to get the messaging out there. So big thanks to the Silence Chain team and everyone that's here. And right now, I'd love to go ahead and bring our esteemed panelists to the stage. And we're going to have them introduce themselves um, when they get up here, because I think it's kind of boring to read bios now. It's kind of an antiquated way with panels and I'd love to have everyone talk about themselves and all the wonderful work that they do. Hashtag black girl magic and one hashtag black boy magic. 
I will start to my left, if we could start with Dr. Vinson. Just tell us a little bit about what you do and why this uh, topic is important to you. So I'm Sarah Vinson. I'm a child and adolescent adult and forensic psychiatrist based here in Atlanta. Um, and I deal with trauma everywhere I work, whether that's the private practice setting, um, in detention facilities, or even as a forensic expert. Um, and so I'm really glad that we're having this discussion today. Ayanna Abrams. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist in Atlanta. Um, I have a solo private practice. Um, I, as Dr. Vincent mentioned, um, in my client population, I work with trauma every day. Um, I see trauma um, in my personal life. I see trauma in my professional life. So this is a really important conversation to be having. Um, and I just challenge you all to take this conversation outside of the room. Hello, my name is Takesha Smith. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a medication assistant treatment specialist. I'm currently at Chris 180. I'm a clinical supervisor. And as well as the other guests, I am in a field where I see trauma um, impacted throughout the African-American community daily. Can you tell them about Chris 180? So Chris 180 is a nonprofit organization that provides services for child and adolescents and now adults within the South Atlanta Southwest and Southeast Atlanta community. And those services includes therapy, um, linkage to other resources. Um, we work cohesively with the Atlanta Police Department, with the Police Athletic League, with um, the Arthur Blank Foundation, and the Atlanta Police Foundation. Thank you, Takesha. Tracy? Good evening. My, good evening. My name is Tracy Jones, and I am from Cleveland, Ohio, but Atlanta's in my heart. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time here, so that it, it really is. I am with the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, um, which we have an office here located several uh, here in Atlanta with Aid Atlanta, which is one of our affiliate uh, organizations. I am the National Director of Mobilization Campaigns for AIDS Healthcare Foundation, and in addition to that, I work uh, as the executive director for an organization called the AIDS Task Force of Greater Cleveland. Um, this is my 20th year in the work, working directly with uh, people living with and their families that are affected by HIV and AIDS, which is synonymous with trauma, right? Um, in addition to that, I am blessed to work uh, on an initiative within AIDS Healthcare Foundation called BLACK, which stands for uh, Black Leadership AIDS Crisis Task Force. And I'm here supporting my colleague uh, who invited me today uh, to address this very, very important topic. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Tracy. Good evening. My name is Vance Williams. Uh, I'm a career law enforcement officer, 25 years. Currently, I'm the assistant chief of the City of Atlanta Detention Center. Uh, I'm a former uniformed patrol officer. Um, I was a director of the major case unit at the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Um, in our facility, we're working on criminal justice reform. We're looking at things like um, cashless bond release. Um, we have a reentry program where we are able to get persons that are currently detained jobs as City of Atlanta employees where they actually re receive a full salary and when they leave our facility, uh, some of them have in excess of 10, 20, 30,000 dollars and a full-time City of Atlanta job with benefits. That's great. Should I call you Chief? Vance? Uh, Vance is fine. Vance, okay. Thank you, Vance. 
Okay, everyone, uh, we gave out some cards and materials. <clears throat> There's a postcard, um, Silence of Shame, um, on white in the, uh, on the back side. I'm going to read a few statistics um, from this card. PTSD among African Americans ranged from 7.8% to 8.7%, as opposed to non-Latin whites, which ranges from 6.9% to 7.4%. African-American women at any age are at much greater risk than other groups of women for rape, rape or sexual abuse, three times more likely than white women to report a rape, and are more um, likely than any other group of women to be raped. African-Americans are 20% more likely to experience serious mental health problems than the general population. African-American youth are more than 25% than the general population to develop PTSD when exposed to violence, and the source is listed at the bottom. The last one I'll read is, individuals with a history of exposure to trauma and a diagnosis of PTSD were at an increased risk for substance use disorder, but trauma alone does not increase the risk. Now, I'd like to start with Dr. Abrams. Can you share with us the definition of trauma and of PTSD and then I want to talk about how you think the majority of people from the black community understand what trauma is and how you would like to see that change. And anyone else, feel free to jump in on that question. Three questions. Okay. Um, and I can repeat so, it if I need to. Right. Um, so one, I appreciate that, there's a, that there was a differentiation even in the question between trauma and PTSD. Because in you experiencing trauma doesn't mean that you meet criteria for PTSD. Um, trauma in more basic terms is the experience of, you know, a distressing event and you don't have the coping skills to manage that event. Um, so oftentimes I'll hear and I'll know that somebody has had a traumatic experience because they describe their outlook on life after the event as different than their outlook on life before the event. So it tells me that something happened to you um, or you witnessed something that changed your outlook on your sense of safety in the world. Um, and that is physical safety or emotional safety, that you can experience a traumatic um, thing happening to you. In terms of specific criteria, um, again, you're looking, you're looking at um, witnessing or experiencing or even hearing about a traumatic experience of somebody else um, and then having some negative symptoms afterwards. So that can be an increase in anxiety, that can be a worry about a sense of safety just in the world, that can be nightmares or flashbacks. Um, it can also look like avoidance of certain things that remind you of something sensory. Um, so a smell might take you back to a traumatic experience, a sound, really um, a, smell. a voice. Mm -hmm. All of our kind of sensory um, uh, patterns can take you back to something um, from childhood sometimes. Um, constant thoughts about something negative that happened to you or something that you witnessed. But again, it, we're looking at a preoccupation with this thing that happened or that you experienced vicariously that has now changed how you view your sense of the world. Thank you. Anyone else want to comment on, or do you want to talk about how you think the majority of people from our community understand what that is and how you would like to see that change? Because so many of us, you know, when we experience a traumatic experience, we don't talk about it. We don't want to tell anyone, right? And so we try to hide those feelings and bury it. But then as we start having those constant thoughts and, and we do encounter that smell, right? What do we do? I think by and large, we don't understand what trauma is, right? right? Which means we can't right. identify that we've had this experience. And what I've also noticed is that, um, not even noticed, but trauma is a very personal experience. So I can't tell you that you haven't experienced a traumatic event. And what happens is that even when we try to talk about something that happened to us, somebody might say, well, that's not trauma. That's not traumatic. I've been through that. 
and I'm fine, so why are you having this reaction? And I think that's actually more of the, the concern and the problem, is that even when people are talking about things that they've experienced that really had an impact on them, we other people in their life might tend to negate it because we don't believe that you should be having that reaction. We see that happen in families, right? All the time. All the time. I have to agree with Dr. Abrams. You know, simply put, trauma is a wound. I'm sorry. Trauma is a wound. And at this moment, I don't think that trauma is fully understood within the African African American community. I think the idea of what trauma is is something like a bombing or a tsunami. So, and what I also often find is that most individuals don't have the vernacular or the language like you spoke of earlier to even express what's happening to them. Can't they articulate the, it. They can't articulate it. They have the feeling of trauma, but they can't really articulate what's happening to them. So those are some of the things we have to pay attention in our community. And as Dr. Abrams said, um, not be so dismissive or invalidating when someone is expressing trauma to you. Anybody else? I was thinking when the, when the doctor spoke, like the experience that happens, it's almost like Groundhog Day. Mm -hmm. um, with some of the folks that we work with, especially uh, younger populations, the way it plays out mm -hmm. is, um, you, you know, it's the definition of insanity. You like, well, child, you keep dating the same person over and over and over. You don't do nothing but change the name. Why are you constantly getting into a situation? Ma'am? You dating Bob five times but and every don't even time. know. It's like, that's the same thing. He just changed his hair. But that continual putting yourself in a situation where these negative things are happening, I think a lot of it is just that struggle with PTSD that you can't get out of that continuous loop. Thank you. And trauma is something that, you know, speaking of that, is something that impacts your ability to function and develop. So as it's happening to our children, these are their developmental years that they're developing in developmental stages. And when you... Uh, implement trauma within that, that disrupts their psychopathology and it impacts their ability to appropriately develop. And you know, it's interesting. Anybody in here watch The Shy? Mm -hmm. you know, so I love that show. And just looking at some of the students uh, and the kids rather on that mm -hmm. show, when they experience trauma in those neighborhoods, you know, a lot of times they go radio silent. Or they start acting out, right? Or, or engaging in, you know, violent activity or, you know, having anger management issues. And so often, you know, we're ready to just, you know, punish the child. Right. And believe me, I'm not saying don't discipline the children because kids need discipline. But what is the root cause of that problem? You know, which is why I want to see this conversation and even trainings around trauma happen within our school systems. Because a lot of our kids are suffering, you know, as a result of trauma, whether it's physical abuse, you know, sexual abuse, trauma from their parents getting a divorce, you know, trauma from death, a loss of a loved one, and we'll talk a little bit more about grief later, but you know, it, there's so many different things and reasons, socioeconomic reasons, you know, generational slavery that's been passed down and, and the parents don't want to deal with that. You know, it, it's just so much and you're, you're spot on when you talk about that. Thank you, yes. Okay, so I want to move on to an article that I read in the Journal of the National Medical Association. And it stated that trauma exposure is high in African Americans who live in stressful urban environments. Post-traumatic stress disorder, better known as PTSD, and depression are common outcomes of trauma exposure and are understudied in African American communities. African Americans are more likely to seek treatment for psychiatric disorders in a primary care physician, uh, setting. Dr. Vinson, why do you think that is that they, you know, people, I guess, more comfortable with their primary care doctor 
than just saying, oh, I want to go see a therapist or I need to see a psychiatrist. Perhaps it's easier to tell your doctor instead of seeing you, as I mentioned, and subjecting yourself to the stigma of that. Yeah, and I definitely think that's a piece of it. Uh, but there are also very real access issues, right? So it can access be issues. access issues to trying to get to see a psychiatrist or trying to get to see a therapist. Right. And if you already have a primary care doctor, that can be a really good first place to start. Um, and in our discussion of trauma, and this often happens in these statistics, we talk about things like abuse and rape and all of these sort of uh, individual events. But when you're talking about the black community, structural trauma is a really important consideration too. Right, so those same issues of mass incarceration, redlining, uh, the school to prison pipeline, all of those things coalesce to make it harder for black people to access things that they need, including mental health services. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to mental health care, I think a piece of it sometimes is that they wanna go to their primary care doctor, and sometimes that may be the only option that they have. Um, but the good thing is it can be a really good place to start Primary care is taking on more of this because they realize this is what communities need them to do. Is it called integrated care now? Is that what they're trying to move towards? They're trying. Okay. Um, <laughs> we, we moving <laughs> toward moving. it. One we are foot not there. Yes. Okay. And um, uh, Georgia, God bless it, isn't always like at the forefront of things we are trying to move nope. toward. Um, but there is a growing understanding that this is where the patients are and this is where the need is, so this is where we need to be as well. Um, and there can be really good first interventions in primary care. I think the big point, though, is that if you're not getting better or if someone you know has started in primary care and they're not getting better, mm -hmm. then you need to think about seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist, just like there may be some skin conditions your primary care doctor can take care of, but if that rash doesn't go away, you need to get to a dermatologist, right? Yeah. If you're still depressed, if you're still not sleeping, if you're getting in arguments with your significant other, if you're not as productive at work, this means you need to escalate it and come to a specialist. Okay, so hypothetically, my name is Kim or John, and I don't have insurance. Or I have, and I'll just tell you my own life, I have a $7,000 a year deductible with a $400 a month premium. And when am I going to meet that deductible, right? And so I end up having to pay full price if I want to go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Are there any free resources? Um, and, and I'm certainly going to let you speak to Keisha around what uh, Chris 180 is doing. What, what can I do before I even get to that step? of even having the resources um, financially to find someone. So in Georgia- If I've experienced a serious trauma, traumatic absolutely. experience. So in Georgia, if you're uninsured, um, they have what are called community service boards. And those are places that you can go, depending on the county that you're in and receive services. Now Fulton County opt out of that system, so they're the exception, uh, but there are still agencies within uh, Fulton County that will provide services to people who are uninsured. Maybe a wait list, it may take a while, it may be good to start with your primary care doctor before you get into there, uh, but there are these safety mental health net providers throughout the state. Um, if you're someone with a high deductible, right, these places may not take you or they may make you pay full price. Um, and the way that I would look at that is, can you afford not to go? Right, so a lot of times we think about what it's costing. You're saying I need to put my trip off? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes. Lighten the mood. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but priorities, yes. And don't get me wrong, I, I am making a way to go to grief counseling, so, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and a lot of times we think about sort of what we're paying out, uh, but there is nothing that is more important That's and more right. central to your life than your mental well-being. That's right. I'm someone who went to medical school and literally told a friend, 
I don't know why anybody would use their medical degree to be a psychiatrist when I started, <laughs> right? And then as I went through, I realized if this doesn't work, nothing else does. This is the most valuable thing you have is your mental well-being. And so if it means you uh, got a Keurig at home instead of you going to Starbucks <laughs> and you go to North Georgia instead of Costa Rica, then work it out. That's right. Thank you. Takesha, do you want to so add anything? Just to piggyback off what Dr. Vincent, Vincent thank you, said, um, and I'm just going to be completely transparent. Uh, right now, the way the system is designed, this is a for-profit business. Behavioral health is a for-profit Wait, can you say that again? <coughs> I'm sorry. Behavioral health is a for-profit business. Um, however, unfortunately, the state of Georgia, we do have a number of what's called community service boards who take individuals who are uninsured or who have state contracted services like Medicaid, peach care, and whatnot. So if you can't afford a private psychiatrist or private um, provider, that those service, just know that those services are available to you. And one of the things we're working on is making sure that there is easy access to those services as well. Uh, the goal is for us to make sure people get the services that they need. And we understand that the system needs to be improved. So just know that we're working aggressively on that. Thank you. Tracy? So I live in Ohio where um, the waiting period to see a paraprofessional, not even a psychologist or a psychiatrist, can be anywhere from six, to, six months to a year. Wow. So people are really struggling. So I, I say to folks, be really careful when you see someone self-medicating because, you know, it's real easy to go, girl, you, girl, weed every day, really, every day? But sometimes that's the only thing they have, you know? And so you might want to probe to ask more questions because it might be something else that is prohibiting that person from getting into the care that they really need. The second thing I want to say is I, I was sitting um, doing what we all do, shouldn't do at the airport on my phone, and they had a listing of the cities that were the most high-stress cities and that just being stressed because of where you live and all of the socioeconomic issues that uh, the doctor was speaking of earlier, like at the top of the list was Detroit and Cleveland. So y'all need to be happy where y'all live. Um, but, but saying that to say that sometimes we don't even internalize that the 24-hour news cycle, the pressure of the, the deadlines. I was, I was telling my friend Amara that you know, somebody called me at 2 a.m., and I am not joking, 2 a.m. this morning, and left me a message like it was 2 in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get the understanding that we say, well, I'm only going to leave a message, you know, but you don't know where that other person is when you send that email on Sunday, when you send that text on Sunday, when you ask for something and the tone of the email can't be, you know, it might be a little off. You typed it, and it was like, ooh. Delete it. Don't send it because you don't know what space you may potentially be triggering for somebody else on their off day, right? Anybody else? Okay. Um, now I'd like to read a portion of this article and then have a few of our expert panelists comment. Okay, the link between racism and PTSD for African Americans. I uh, read this on psychology today. Racism-related experiences can range from frequent ambiguous microaggressions to blatant hate crimes and physical assault. Racial microaggressions are subtle yet pervasive acts of racism. These can be brief remarks, vague insults, 
or even nonverbal exchanges, such as a scowl or refusal to sit next to a black person on the subway or plane or what have you. When experiencing microaggressions, the target losses vital mental resources trying to figure out the intention of one committing the act. These events may happen frequently, making it difficult to mentally manage the sheer volume of racial stressors. The unpredictable and anxiety-provoking nature of the events, which may be dismissed by others, can lead victims to feel as if they are going crazy. Chronic fear of these experiences may lead to constant vigilance or even paranoia, which over time may result in traumatization or contribute to PTSD when a more stressful event occurs. In fact, one study of female veterans found that African-Americans scored higher on measures of ideas of persecution and paranoia, which the authors attributed to an adaptive response to racism. Any of our panelists can take this. Can one of you talk about racism, generational trauma from slavery, and microaggressions and how they affect our mental wellness in our community? Lord. <laughs> Just yesterday, again, I, I, I was telling my friend, I, I went into a store, shopping, Kohl's, Target, you know what we do on Sunday, ladies and gents. And my experience shopping was, did nobody follow me around the store? I might go back there. Mm -hmm. The constant trauma and the expectation that we have, you know, that I got cards and money in my purse, but someone will follow me through this store, or they're gonna talk into their jacket, or they're talking into their sleeve. All things I understand, because we want to make sure that your store continues to exist, but the, the, the microaggression of constantly feeling watched, constantly feeling observed, constantly feeling mistrusted, it weighs, right? So I got one for you. I was in Walmart uh, this weekend in Charlotte because my mother has Alzheimer's and she's in a facility. So I had to go replenish some of her items and so forth. So I have my cart and my buggy. My purse is in the cart. Clearly, I have a cart full of things. And this older white couple was like, um, I'm sure you work here. Can you help me with this? I'm like, I'm sorry, what? I have a cart just like you do, sir. Why do you assume that I am working here? So those vague insults, I mean, I get that so much. And it's, it's, it's traumatic, you know, in a way. When you, when you talk about being hypervigilant, uh, I made a small joke with you when we <laughs> sat down and she moved her purse. And I, I was joking, but I said, you know, don't worry, I'm not gonna take your purse. But I've felt like that before where you almost had to apologize to someone, you don't have to be afraid of me that I've come around the side of the car while you're pumping the gas. I'm, I'm not the enemy. But, but you feel like that from time to time. Even as a professional within this, um, this demographic, as a black female in leadership, um, I'm often invited or uninvited to, to meetings where they are establishing um, policies and regulations, and if I come in with a white male counterpart, I'm automatically dismissed as his assistant, mm. not knowing and understanding Are I'm you his serious? boss. Right, right. That happens very often. So that's an invalidation. Wait a they think you are the assistant every time, and you're the boss every time. How dare Anybody I? Ever I know more. That? Wow. Right. 
And what about you guys as clinicians? Because I know there, I don't know what the exact percentage is of African-American psychiatrists and psychologists, but I do know that the percentage is low. Right, and even when you look at some of these larger, because we're an advocacy organization, and I find sometimes I don't get invited to the larger uh, advocacy um, conventions, right, and conferences, even as a speaker and sharing my story. Um, and I just want to shout out Theo and Layla from DVHDD because DVHDD supports us, and we're very grateful for the partnership um, and the work that we're doing. But not all of these other organizations are like that, and I'm sure you guys must feel it as clinicians. I feel it as a, a clinician. I see it in my clientele in terms of who um, shows up and who makes it to therapy, who stays in therapy. Um, I've definitely experienced it across my career where I'm not assumed to be the psychologist. I'm assumed to be the admin um, who's in my space, um, where if there are events happening, I the same thing, like why do all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria? I find the black therapist and we go right over here because we typically have, that's how we met. That's how we met, literally. <laughs> There were three black people, and we're yes. all cool. Yes, and Sarah came in and said, oh, black therapist, and now we are friends, Who right? Who is she? Having, I know her. Right. <laughs> having to look for that sense of safety, right, because we walk around the world feeling unsafe, and, and that is the hypervigilance, and that is the anxiety where we're literally asking permission to exist in spaces that we deserve to exist in. How about that? Right, but I have to, to let you know that, no, it's safe for you so that it's safe for me. I got to make sure that you feel safe first so that you don't do nothing, right, and call whosoever on me, and then I have to take care of all these things on the back end. Um, so that is the, that's what it creates where that is always on our minds. We don't have the luxury of not thinking about where we are. We don't have the luxury of not thinking about who's around us, who might do this, how I'm dressed, um, what I'm saying, what my vernacular is, what language I'm using, um, depending on who was around us, because if they take it the wrong way, they have more access to resources to harm me, right? Mm. And that is a stressor that, again, we don't have the, the luxury of not holding and not holding on to from the minute we wake up to when we go to sleep. And, and I just want to push back a little bit about the hypervigilance and anxiety piece, mm -hmm. right? So hypervigilance makes it sound as if you're more vigilant than you should be mm. or than the actual mm -hmm. situation warrants you should be. And I would posit that a lot of us are not hypervigilant. We are appropriately vigilant for the society that That's we right. exist in. That's and right. the same thing with anxiety, right? Anxiety is when you have these distortions about what's happening. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between anxiety and fear, right? Fear is based on the reality of your life and of your circumstances. And so even in white spaces, I find myself really saying, is this anxiety or is this fear? And are we sometimes being invalidating of people's experiences by pathologizing them when the society itself is what is pathological and how it's treating them. Mm. Mm -hmm. Tracy? I was just gonna quickly add, like the, and the fear is omnipresent. So now it's, you know, even when you feel like you should be receiving proper services, if the person on the mm -hmm. other side of the serving phone potentially can put you in danger. Like, it's almost like you have to be fearful to eat. You know, you have to be fearful to obtain the services that you're entitled to. So you find yourself on eggshells and it happens over and over. It's at the grocery store, it's at the post office. You don't want to seem to, you know, girl, I've been in this line 20 minutes, but you don't want to, right. don't get, don't, don't, you know, you can't be too much because you know, you want to make sure that they feel okay so they don't have to call somebody else, right? 
Yeah, how many times have, you know, we've seen it play out on social media where, you know, you get the police called on you for being black. You had a cookout or you were at a bookstore or you're here or you're in a store and you were, you know, you were paying customer just like anybody else. It's, it's really ridiculous. And then when you look at it from a pop culture perspective, everybody wants to be a part of urban culture. You know, urban culture is pop culture. Right. And I certainly learned that when I was working in the entertainment industry because everything that we do, you know, becomes cool, so to speak. And then people want to start taking credit for braids. They started rocking when we've been wearing braids in, in Africa back in the day. <laughs> I don't even go off on that tangent. But that can be dramatic too, right? Yes. So anybody else in that question? I, I, I just did want to add, though, so there are things that can be protective okay. against that, right? So <laughs> it is here. It's not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> But being uh, rooted in your black identity in a way that is defined very intentionally in truth, right, and not the prevailing narrative has been found to be protective. Um, so I literally took a vacation and just read James Baldwin for three days and came back ready to go, right? Oh, wow. That right. was, for me, protective when I came back to this, right? right? Um, the other thing is being in affirming spaces. So, yeah, we found each other at the mixer, right, but we still find each other around all sorts of things about what we experience as black women working in this society. So putting yourself around other black people intentionally and having honest conversations about these things can be protective as well. Thank you, Dr. Vincent. Tracy, you put together national and regional campaigns for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Can you talk about how people in our community sometimes experience trauma as a result of an HIV or AIDS diagnosis and how do you help them combat that stigma and deal with that trauma? Much to what we've been speaking to, um, the process of getting an HIV test. I, I was speaking to um, a young woman last week who, she was like, just the process of going. I know I ain't got nothing to worry about. Well, there was, ooh, well, there was, ooh, well. You know, so you start for the time that it takes to get that positive result, the trauma of your life. It's like your life every bad deed in your mind passes through, right? Whatever you consider to be bad, right? One night stand or I, the condom slipped off or whatever. So now you've got a negative result. You have some survivor's guilt, right? That goes, whew, I dodged a bullet, but it's the thing of, you know, that split second of all the people that didn't. So you think that, that's trauma. Or you get a positive result. Now I've got to deal with all of those things. And, you know, on one side of my brain is somebody rock climbing. I'm going to live my life and it's going to be all right. On the other side of my brain is I got people to tell, am I ever going to be loved? What am I going to do? How Will am I ever I have a relationship it? again? How am I going to have another relationship? Mm -hmm. And it is trauma every day. So how do you combat that? You find spaces to, to share your story. You find a doctor that's going to be receptive and positive to your illness and be truthful with you, but make sure that they provide you the adequate care. Because what happens is there, you need to go to an infectious disease doctor. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm here to tell y'all, black people ain't going into infectious disease. We got too many other things we could be doing. That ain't at the top of the list. So we struggle to even find doctors that are competent, that are culturally competent to our issues, right? So y'all need to go into infectious disease and help us out. Um, but the other thing that you need to do is to make sure that 
you don't make it worse for somebody else. Because I think yeah. sometimes that's the thing that goes to the top of the list is, you know, going off the subject a bit. But I think sometimes as black women, you know, we the girl walks up and you can see them talking about you as you come forward. You know, and they hey, girl, how you doing? You know, you do, mm. but that kind of stuff, those microaggressions, those contribute. As a person who's, I'm not living with HIV, but as a person who's living with HIV, that's going to be that constant dealing with the microaggressions. Mm -hmm. So some of that is being aware and you yourself trying to control and not go tick, tick, boom, but also making sure that you surround yourself with people that love and care. And then just alleviating the stigma with that, you know, um, want to shout out Amara Kennedy, who is the um, Director of Community Engagement for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Um, yes, he's a wonderful person and a dear friend. Um, they actually provided us with a grant, and we're doing community conversations around the nation um, to address the double stigma of HIV and mental health. And I will tell you, um, I don't know the exact stats, but Atlanta is on the rise um, with an increase of, it's number one? Okay, see, I didn't know that. Do you want to just give like the main stat really quickly if you can? And not just same sex relationships. And Shanti, yes. I did want to add the, the one stat as it relates to uh, mental health and severe depression. Yes. As it relates to people living with HIV and AIDS, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of um, 600 million people that are infected with HIV. To those that don't know, potentially 900 million. And 22% of those uh, 600 to 900 million folks are living with uh, severe depression. So it impacts this population. Yeah, we have hard. a lot of work to do. Thank you. Um, uh, next, I want to move on to an article that I saw that was quite disturbing, but we all know this, but to just see this number, and this may not even be an exact number, but I was looking on newsone.com, and it listed the name of 64 black men and boys that have been killed by the police in the last five years. And we know that every situation is different, and I'm, this is not a, a opportunity for me to, you know, I'm not bash, bashing law enforcement or anything, but I do think there needs to be some significant changes um, going on um, in our community. Unfortunately and oftentimes, we see these traumatic acts of violence carried out on TV or re-airing over and over again on social media, right? 
so you look at the level of trauma that's building up, especially for our men, just seeing that being rehashed over and over. Can you all please comment on how the stress and trauma of seeing these killings over and over can affect our young people's minds and adults as well, their mental psyche, and potentially lead to anxiety, depression, PTSD, and more? What do we need to be doing as a nation and as a community? And talk so, about the effects of that on our community. So um, I have three children, and uh, they are 23, 19, she's about to be 20, and I have a 16-year-old. My 16-year-old isn't here, but I'm gonna share one of his stories that he shares at my cultural competency workshops that you know, I facilitate. And he always talks about the situation, I think it was in Chicago with the gentleman named Alton. Mm -hmm. Yes, Alton okay. Sterling. Alton Sterling. Mm -hmm. um, my husband's name is Alton. Alton Smith. So one day they were taking, he, he was taking my son to practice and he, my husband got pulled over. And he said the first thing that came to his mind was the Alton Sterling situation. Mm. He had just seen it on YouTube and right. whatnot. Right. So he was like paralyzed with fear. Mm. Okay, that this could be his father right now at this time. And what did I do? Um, what, what actually do I do? My 16 year old, he's also on the spectrum. So he's in a position of fight or flight. And for him, he just froze. Mm. But to hear him tell his story every time impacts me yeah. as his mother. Of course. And it is, we're starting to see, not just starting, but we're actually continuing to witness residuals of that with kids and those, with, with how it impacts the community, the, being, the black, the African-American community. Yeah, even for me, you know, um, I, I live north of the city and, um, you know, I freeze up when I see blue lights. You know, I try to drive the speed limit. I know people, ooh, y'all can't stand me on these streets because I'm like an old lady driving because I'm like, I'm not trying to rock the boat. I don't feel like dealing with a cop because I got pulled over. It was last year or the year before last, and uh, we had had a death in the family, so I was trying to pick up a step and repeat banner for an event that we were doing, and I was near Beaufort, Georgia. And so I might have been going five minutes, I mean, five miles per hour over, but it wasn't anything crazy, but people were speeding by me but the guy stopped me, and so, of course, you know, I got really nervous, and I was like, let me kind of prepare myself to see how I'm going to deal with this. And then, you know, it's one thing to get pulled over. I'm like, just write me the ticket if you're going to give me a ticket. But he had the nerve to ask me, what was I doing up there? Right. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, what? If you have to know, I live only 15 minutes from here, but just tell me if I'm speeding. Like, let's get to the problem at hand. What does this have to do with me being up here? Right. And so that was a traumatic experience for me. Certainly, I'm not um, comparing no, my situation no, right. to your son, but I just think people of color in general, you know, when, when we have to deal the, with the experience, uh, the experience you it know, was it's very traumatic. It was a teachable moment. And for our household, one of the things my husband does, and they, their godfather's retired law enforcement, my husband has taught them that when you get pulled over, you let down all the windows, you make sure your phone is up front, you take out your wallet, you lay it up top, and you keep your hands on the steering wheels at all times because that is what will hopefully keep them somewhat safe or at least allow them to live to tell their side of the story. That's right. Can our mental health professionals comment on that? Yeah, so um, seeing it repeatedly uh, is not helpful or a good thing, right? So uh, the more that you identify with the victim in a situation, 
the bigger the impact is on you. So they've actually studied this, right? Like a white person watches this video and they're not affected in the same way that a black person is watching these video because you identify with this person in another way. And so exposing yourself or your children being exposed to these you know, viral clips is not helpful, right? You don't need that to be woke or to be aware or to understand that there are problems with society, right? Like I had a friend who um, was like, oh, have you seen this latest video? I'm like, I don't need to see the video. I work at Juvie and I work at Fulton County Public Health Department and I do forensic mental health consultation work. I see this every day. I don't need to see it in this representation and watch it over and over again. And neither do any of you, right? Like you know that these things are issues. Um, so don't feel as if you have to do your part or you're stepping away from the problem just by stepping away from this traumatic exposure. You don't have to do that. Um, the other thing I would say is when it comes to young people, having conversations about these things and helping them with the words and helping uh, them to understand that the response that they have makes sense given the situation can be really helpful, right? So what I see in that self-medication point uh, was so key because in a lot of places, it's easier to access marijuana than a therapist. Right? right? It's more socially acceptable to smoke weed than to go to therapy. Right. And so you do see a lot of that. And what happens is if you don't have the words, it comes out some other sort of way. Mm -hmm. So don't watch the clip over and over again, but if it comes up in the news, you can talk about how it makes them feel. Mm -hmm. The words to describe that, yes, that makes sense. And that can be sort of a teachable moment for them around those. Yeah, things. I think it's imperative that we, you know, we, we talk to our babies, you know, we talk to our families, our cousins, you know, we need the village back, right? Unfortunately, you know, I grew up in, in Southwest Atlanta, um, as we finally call the SWATs. And, you know, if something happened, you know, not only my grandma, my, one of my best friends, Jamil, is here, my grandmother would say something, my mom, and then the, my friend's mom up the street, or, you know, we, we had a community that supported one another. You know, I was happy to see um, one of the episodes on Blackish as well as on Queen Sugar you know, address the issue. Um, and so we have to start bringing it to the, the forefront of culture. And we know so many of our young people look um, at their own lives through the lens of entertainment. So we wanna make sure we bring up these conversations more and, and get back to sitting down at the table, putting the phones away, mm -hmm. right? And, and talking to one another. You know, it's imperative that we have these conversations. You know, our young people, you know, this new generation now, I don't even know they, you know, it's X, Y, Gen Z, you know, and now we're on to the next. The young, young people, people, they're so connected. Think about it. We have babies that would have never grown up without a smartphone. They can Google the same thing at three years old that we can Google. Whereas back in the day, you know, we had encyclopedias or we had to wait for the nightly news to come on. But now, you know, news is instantaneous, right? And everything that's going on, you know, not just the good stuff, all the traumatic stuff that's going on, you know, it's fed to us over and over and over again. We got to protect our babies and talk to our children so that they can learn how to deal with this. Dr. I, I was just going to say that, that even with the images that are there that are on social media, I don't think people recognize that as a traumatic image to take in and how graphic it is. And we are the only bodies that are on social media in mm -hmm. these ways that are hurt and maimed and killed over and over and over again. You don't see white bodies like that in the media. You don't see white bodies portrayed like point. that in the news, but ours repeatedly are. And the videos that come through, I think like automatically on Facebook, where you mm -hmm. don't even get a chance to stop it 
but you hear things and you see images of that. Those are things that stay in our minds and kind of stay in our psyches in ways that many people don't recognize. And those are images that replay, even if it's not on a conscious level, mm -hmm. those things are subconscious and they, they begin to affect your decision making, they begin to affect, again, your worldview and how safe you feel um, kind of day to day when you leave your house, when you're in your house. Um, but in taking in those images, you are changing how you view the world. That's right. Um, I'd like to pose this question for Vance. Have you ever been in a critical situation where you experienced trauma in the line of duty? Um, a few times, and, and it depends. Um, it's kind of like you said, someone can't define your trauma to you. It, it depends on how it, it acts um, or manifests in yourself. Um, when I worked as a detective, I worked sex crimes, so I did a lot of criminal investigations for child molestations. And one of the things is we, we don't get enough training in how to cope. So when I would watch the therapist on closed circuit TV interviewing the child, um, my daughter was eight years old at the time, my son was four, I immediately identified the child with my children. And so in the closed circuit TV room, I would begin to cry because I was so happy I was in there by myself because I had to get the evidence to prove the crime. But to hear this child talk about and speak of things that children should not speak about, that they shouldn't know anything about was very traumatizing to me. And I, and I would always tell my wife, you know, it, it takes me weeks to process this and get back to where I feel that I'm me again. It, it would dim my outlook of what the world looks like, like a, a human being did this to a baby. Why? I don't understand why. Somebody needs to explain it to me. Yeah, and that's interesting because I always, you know, I look at you guys, right, who are out on the front lines, um, you know, as the wounded healers, if you will. Um, my pastor, Dr. Raphael G. Warnock, exposed uh, myself and my co-host, Free the Vision of our podcast, to the wounded healer notion. And as, you know, I'm still healing, you know, through a lot of my own trauma that I've been dealing with, you know, I have to figure out a way, how do you separate it? You know, our latest podcast um, that we, or the one before the latest one, is does your therapist have a therapist? Right? <laughs> It's really interesting. It's a great podcast for any clinicians in the room because you guys have to figure out a way because I can't imagine seeing the trauma and even just having to deal with it. And I know you guys do the best that you can to leave work at the office, but I'm sure there are times where it's really heavy. Mm -hmm. Which is why we talk to each other. <laughs> um, and, and for law enforcement officers, though, in particular, right, there is a suicide epidemic happening with law enforcement officers. Um, and people can't give what they themselves don't have, right? So you're asking them to be compassionate and to not be impulsive and to not be reactive, but they're not getting the support that they need. And I remember when the shooting happened in Dallas and the chief said, the cops have to do everything, right? The school kicks the kids out, the mental health community doesn't support them, right? And what happens is the criminal justice system or the juvenile justice system becomes the repository for all the other systems that are failing, mm -hmm. right? And I see this every day working at Juvie or doing a forensic evaluation that if housing had been in place, if DFACS had done their job, if the mom had been able to get substance use treatment when she needed it, that kid wouldn't have ended up there, right? So they end up trying to hold 
all these things that the other pieces of society should have picked up if the safety net wasn't as frayed as it is, but they're the one system that can't turn anybody away. Um, I want to go back to what we were talking about with social media. Um, can social media cause PTSD? I saw, I was reading an article on business2community.com, and this was not just in the African-American community, but I think it's important to address. It stated that social media stress caused by seeing different, caused by seeing something different that affects us negatively has been linked to post-traumatic stress disorder. Several studies have shown a series of psychological issues that can arise from using social networks. Um, Takesha, Dr. Vincent, Dr. Abrams, <coughs> any of you guys can comment on this, but I know for one, and to our millennials that are in the room, you know, how often do we check the highlight reel to see what everybody else is doing? And then um, I often talk to Cameron, who's our communications manager, about adulting and how stressful that can be. And then you find yourself going through everybody else's pages and they hashtag living their best life or in Costa Rica or posting, you know, the, the perfect picture or they then use about, you know, three different apps to get the body right and, and the tan and the this and the that. And it, it can lead to a traumatic and very stressful situation for our younger generation. And it's an important conversation that I think we need to talk about. I think that your social media use can absolutely heighten um, your sense of kind of what's going on in the world. It can also desensitize you from things if you're seeing it just over and over and over again. Um, but what I always say about social media use is that it's much more in your control than I think people take responsibility for. You curate your feed. You abs that is one thing you actually do have control over in terms of who you are following, what the content tends to be. Um, and if there's somebody who posts something, it might just be a kind of one thing that I know that if you have the ability to post this thing and not think about how it's affecting other people, you have the ability to post other things. So I'm more likely to unfollow you, right? So there's also a piece about taking responsibility for um, the content that you are taking in for what you can control. There's some of it that um, obviously we cannot. I know a lot of people don't watch the news. Right. Stop watching. Particularly given what time of night it comes on and kind of the time of morning. So thinking about when I'm taking in some of these images and these storylines, you know, right before bed, we're looking at okay where that sits in your subconscious, and now you're asleep, yeah, dreaming about, about stuff. Absolutely. Like if you're watching news at 10, 11 at night, that stuff stays with you. It's not something that you can just turn off in ways in which we think that we have control over. That's a great point. Um, yep. So in thinking about our social media use, really paying attention to who you are following, and what they are valuing, because those things then become internalized as your own values, right? Anybody else want to comment on that? Okay. So we I was just going to say the demographics that we work with at Chris 180 at the Ad Promise Center, which is typically ages 12 to 24, um, you, you have, we work with a group whose frontal lobe is still very much underdeveloped, and I know everyone here understands that, so they're so very impressionable. Their, their measurables is their, their peers and what they see on the internet. So when they come to the Ad Promise Center, one of the things we do is that we have them to place their phones in their lockers because we need you fully engaged. I need your attention within the appropriate, you know, developmental time span. So I agree also with what Dr. Abrams was saying as far as we have teaching them that they have more power to disconnect from that than what they realize. Um, the last thing I'm going to touch on, and then we're going to open up the floor for questions because this is, um, we want it to be an exchange of dialogue and a community conversation. So, um, and I'm going to try to get through this last one. And it's a lot of other things we haven't touched on that, you know, like sexual abuse, you know, growing up in the foster care system, there's so many different things that we can experience in our lives. 
Um, again, we didn't really touch a lot on divorce, but I'm not sure a lot of you or your family members have experiences of, of so many things that lead to trauma in our community. But the one thing that um, I want to talk about right now is the trauma that you experience from grief, um, the loss of a loved one, a close friend or colleague. Um, and I'm just wondering if PTSD can occur after a bereavement or is it just, you know, <clears throat> like any other trauma in your life, it depends on kind of how you handle it. Um, well, I didn't share with you guys, and some of you know, um, My sister passed away in April. I don't even know how I'm still up here talking, y'all. I am a hot mess right now. I can't even bring myself to start grief counseling, and I'm doing this work. I'm trying to help you guys. But I feel like my life has changed forever. It will never be the same. Never. I have the support of friends and loved ones and you know, my cousins are here tonight, and it was my sister who helped me get the help I needed when I was having my suicidal ideation. And just, I keep reliving, you know, I wasn't there, but she was on vacation in Cancun, and we think it was a blood clot um, that traveled, and she was probably dead in 15 minutes. I just texted with her that night, and when our dad took his own life, she was eight, and I was seven months old. So she was more like a mom to me. Um, and so she helped to raise me. And then as we got older, you know, we became best friends. And so now my mom is still living, but she was kind of helping with that. And so I'm dealing with that now. Um, but it like is the worst thing I've ever experienced. And even though I wasn't there, I keep just rehashing the image of what it was like for her in the ambulance or that night when everyone was trying to revive her. And, you know, every smell, every conversation everything reminds me of my sister and I know I need the help and, and I'm going to get the help that I need from grief counseling I do practice self-care but the grief is like unspeakable can you guys just kind of talk about grief and how so many of us in our community you know we don't go to grief counseling as a family when loved ones pass away or when we see our homeboys and homegirls get shot right in front of us and these kids go right back to school the next day they're experiencing trauma from that right. but we're not talking about it in our community I, I absolutely think that um, that depending on you your experiences that the loss of someone something some scenario um, can lead to a trauma response because there's a helplessness that comes with it there's there's the sense that I can't do anything else to have changed this thing from having this impact either on that person or on my life um, and that is what can turn into um, a trauma response I will say that I am hesitant to um, diagnose someone with PTSD who's navigating grief because it's a grief response to me so I get out of the labels and I get out of the DSM and all of that okay um, and I let you be human and say oh this is a response and this is not an abnormal response to something terrible that has happened to you and something terrible that you are 
processing and needs some time around. So I'm not quick to diagnose PTSD for that. Um, but I do think that if some other symptoms and other criteria show up um, across an extended period of time, then it might warrant a diagnosis. But I'm very, very careful to not throw out that diagnosis, even if you say that there are nightmares and dreams and flashbacks and just kind of playing things over and over in your mind. For me, that's a normal grief response. Anybody else? I came up with this new acronym for grief. It's going right into extreme faith. Mm. I don't know what else to do other than lean on God. Like I find myself listening and I'm not here to impose my beliefs on anyone, but I'm a very spiritual person. And so in addition to, you know, getting the help that I need from a grief counselor, you know, I try to immerse myself with positive images and positive words. And, you know, I read an article about how forest therapy Mm -hmm. and being out in nature, right? Because the first law of nature is self-preservation. Um, so my team members and I, we took a trip up to Helen, Georgia, to Anna Ruby Falls. And I just, you know, I went twice in one week. But just being near the falls and being out in nature is, is, has been so healing for me um, from a grief perspective. And so anybody that has ever experienced it, I urge you to do that and, and engage in self-care. And whatever trauma that you're experiencing or going through, um, self-care is a must. You know, we, we take pride in some of the outreach events that we do. We have Silence to Shame Self-Care Saturdays. Um, big shout out to Cameron and Portia and Free and the rest of our team um, who help facilitate that. But we, we, have, we offer free classes twice a month to the Atlanta community. Um, Zumba classes, trap yoga, um, uh, journal release classes. But it's so important to add that, right, to what you're doing. Um, around your self-care regimen. So now I think we should open up the floor for questions. Um, I'm gonna take one of these mics and then we can share. And I will ask one of my team members, Portia, if you could um, take around the mic for us. And just state your name, please, and your question. Hello, thank you all for sharing your expertise with us. Um, and, I, and this topic is very near and dear to me. My name is Ivory Shields. I have a master's degree in occupational therapy. Um, and our profession was born in the mental health sector, um, but it's evolved into physical and function. But my passion is um, the mental part of it, the emotional part of it. Um, and so I wanted to know your thoughts on how well a health and wellness coach can complement what you all do. Because I certainly don't have the expertise to, to go over and venture into um, treating someone with psychiatric disorders and um, you know people who need medication and, and that sort of thing. But to your point, Dr. Vincent, about there not being a lot of access um, to mental health professionals within our community, um, how can health and wellness coaches um, be adjuncts or complement what you all do? So I think it's really important. Um, you know, a lot of times in psychiatry and in psychology, there is this emphasis on pathology, right? It's what is wrong with you, let us diagnose you, let us tell you all the things that are wrong with you and give it a label, right? And mental health is not just the absence of mental illness, it's the ability to form positive relationships, to contribute to your society, to uh, fulfill your innate potentials that you have, right? And so um, 
I recently had a conversation with a group in California that's creating a youth diversion program, and of course they call me about the mental health services, and I'm preaching to them about, do they have after school programs, right? And sports things that they can be enrolled in, and something that gives them a different thing to anchor their identity around other than being a delinquent, right? Because that's just as important, if not more, than anybody like me that you're gonna have as part of your program, right? And so it was funny, because one of the people said, well, so it sounds like what you're saying, like the family and the community is the client. Yes. <laughs> Please call me again, because y'all, like, right? Um, so it's, it's absolutely critical, um, absolutely critical. Thank you. Does anyone want to add to that? or? No, I would just agree with Dr. Vincent. Um, as at, at the Ant Promise Center, one of the things we do is we work uh, in collaboration with other entities and other mm -hmm. agencies to better help facilitate not just treatment, and it goes back to what Dr. Vincent was saying about pathologizing everything. You know, often what I think we have stepped away from is, is the values and the gems within the community. We have golden nuggets within our own community and tapping into that. So um, I see how a life coach could complement everything that we do. Yeah, I love that. I think we need to start looking at our overall health and wellness in general, right? Like, get yourself, you know, uh, what do you think, the vision board. But do a vision board for wellness in your own life. What is your vision board for, I think we'll sponsor a self-care Saturday and we'll have somebody come in and do a vision board for wellness. And you know what, we should talk right after this. <laughs> um, but I think it's important, right? So that you have your clinicians, right? You have your therapist, you have your life coach, you have your self-care regimen, you have your starting five, as I like to call it. You know, who are the five people in your lineup, if you will, because, you know, the Hawks can't take the court unless they got five players playing. So you really shouldn't live your life unless you got five good people that you can call on, whether it's a family member, a friend, a coach, a trusted colleague, or sorority sister, sorority brother, um, what have you. But we need to make sure that we implement vision boards for our overall health and wellness. So thank you for that question. Next question. My name is Victor Williams. Um, I wonder if there is an acceptable level of trauma. And to provide a little context, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that have grown up without fathers, right? In some communities, that may be something that's extremely traumatic. Whereas in other communities, it may be, you didn't get my Starbucks uh, order right, right? Or, or uh, you brought up uh, the examples of police brutality that show up in media to some people that sort of desensitizes them to where this is just how life is. Uh, so my question is, is there an acceptable level of trauma that should be taken as that's just what life is? Uh, that's oh. deep. <laughs> Dr. Vincent? So just because that's how life is doesn't mean it's right or not harmful, right? So what I see a lot of, particularly when there are instances of community level trauma, where you are 17 and you know three people who've been killed, right? They may not meet criteria for PTSD, but that experience of that young black man who has seen so many young black men die is my life is not valuable. So that young black man does things like 
armed robberies and takes risks and is reckless with his life because his interpretation of the world is my life doesn't actually matter, right? So there are things that don't become PTSD in the clinical sense or in the classic sense, but that impact how you see yourself operating in the world and that impact how you see your place in the world. People can take different things, right? So some people may develop those clinical criteria for PTSD and some people won't. And the way that um, I describe it, and it's a really simple, uh, it's a simplistic way to think about it, but right, there are people who can eat McDonald's and Popeyes and not have a heart attack at 45, right? And there are people who eat McDonald's and Popeyes and have a heart attack at 45, right? McDonald's and Popeyes is like trauma to the heart and to your blood vessels, right? Some people can experience things and they have resilience or they have other coping skills or they have a support network that's different and they don't re respond to the trauma in the same way, whereas for somebody else that may be fatal. And I want to add- a great analogy. Oh. I wanted to add to that my, my hesitation around acceptable trauma. Um, that there's a way that, particularly for the black community, we are already told and taught and coached that our life is going to be harder and that our life is supposed to be harder in these ways. And <clears throat> I think that that also creates this kind of notion and kind of, again, this worldview that these things are not trauma because this is what it means to be black in the world, right? That I'm supposed to be witnessing things like this because that's what it's like to live in a black community. That witnessing violence, um, that witnessing, whether in the home or outside of the home, um, dealing with loss on top of loss on top of loss, not being valued, not being trusted is just part of the black experience. Um, and again, just because it, it is that's that way dangerous. for some people. Yeah, absolutely, it's dangerous right? Mindset. It's the worldview. And just because it is that way, and just because other people experience that way, doesn't mean that you don't deserve different. It doesn't mean that you don't deserve um, right. to experience right. things that are different and are better in the world. And if we begin to accept that this is what it is or this is what it's supposed to be, um, then there's going to be less work or kind of challenge to expose us to the lives that we deserve to live. Um, so I, I, that's tough for me to say acceptable um, trauma in this way because, again, it, it stunts our worldview. We're going to move to the next question, but Vance, you had a comment. Um, I, I was thinking you said what is an acceptable amount is there a such thing? So one of the things, um, when I was the director of the major case unit, I worked homicides. Mm -hmm. And one of the things in self-care that I had to learn was how much was enough for me. Mm -hmm. And so I knew when I couldn't sleep, when I was having the nightmares, um, I knew it was time to go mm -hmm. and sit down with someone and talk about what I had seen and what I had experienced. Um, now the the fantasy is, it's, it's supposed to be that I can take anything, mm. but I, I'm just a man. So I have to look at that mm -hmm. face in the mirror and say, you, you need to go get some help. And that's what I chose to do. And oftentimes, you know, we, we, we get pegged as, you know, the strong black woman, and that's great, mm -hmm. right? A strong black man, but we are human, right. right? And so sometimes, you know, hashtag queen, hashtag king, Hashtag, I'm a queen and I go to therapy. Mm -hmm. Hashtag, I'm a king and I go to therapy. Mm -hmm. We have to learn how, like you said, Vance, to figure out what our level of acceptance to be able to deal with any of that is. And also listening to your self and your body, body. Right? right? So um, my first 
death penalty case for forensics, like I came home and I crashed. Um, I was like, am I, do I need to, do I need to call Ayana and get her to scream me? Cause maybe, and, and then I was like, you just immersed yourself in a double homicide case. You went through this man's trauma starting at the age of three years old, created this whole narrative for court, testified and had to wait to hear if the state was gonna kill him or not. Like, wow. but right, this is what I do, right? But I, I didn't put it together that I needed to crash for two days after that, right? And so I ended up watching, like binge watching Atlanta, which was great, and eating pizza, <laughs> right? And that's what I needed to do, right? And so now, after those cases, I factor in two days afterwards, right? So I'm not gonna wait until I'm feeling bad. I know this has happened. I've taken all this stuff in. I gotta give myself some downtime. So if you know that you have some big thing that's going to be required of you, if you're doing something that's emotionally taxing, be intentional and proactive about that downtime for yourself. Thank you, next question. So my question is um, for the panelists and that I'm noticing something in this room that's been similar in terms of this conversation that we've taken around the country is that of a, a full audience that there's 11 men in the room. And we're seeing this in similar situations in urban communities that we're going through across the country. And so my question really is, as a brother who is committed to supporting this work and learning this work and so forth, how do we engage brothers to come to the table, be a part of the conversation, and to recognize the work that we need to be doing as brothers individually, and quite honestly, as brothers collectively? Because I just keep seeing us void from the spaces and void from being at the table. And that, and that really concerns me with so much that we know just is going on with us as black men. So I'm, <laughs> I'm very intentional. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm very intentional um, when opportunities present and I'm in the presence of other black men such as yourself, such as our program director. Um, and I always, dialogue with them and I let them know that they are needed. I think our black men need to hear that. You are respected, you are loved, you are highly regarded, and we need you. Our legacy needs you. So that is typically um, how I initiate the conversation and that leads an open door for them to come into our center and come in and interact with us and the kids in our community. I like to add that, that what, I, what I think and know um, is very important is again, taking the dialogues like this out of the room, right? So for men to have conversations with men about what they are experiencing, what they're needing, what they saw, what they heard today, um, but it will require discomfort. And oftentimes we only wanna have conversations that feel comfortable. So let me look for the right moment to say this or this or this. Um, so men oftentimes only end up talking about stuff when it's already crossed so much of a threshold that now it's not avoidable anymore, right? Because now there's a breakdown in something or now we don't see our homeboy anymore and we don't know what's going on or now he's self-medicating and now there needs to be some other kind of intervention. Um, but, but allowing yourself to be uncomfortable and even kind of offering the conversation allows you to practice like, yeah, this is uncomfortable, but I'm still gonna ask you how you're doing and how your mental health is. I'm still gonna ask you what's going on in your relationship. You don't wanna answer me, okay. I'm gonna ask you again next week. So it means taking that risk and continuing to take that risk because specifically for men, again, we're still in a world that 
tells men that the only emotion that they're allowed to have are anger, right? Well, first it tells you that you, yeah, that you don't have emotions, right? But men got all the emotions, right? Um, and that the only one you're allowed to display is anger or joy or lust, right, in those ways. And it really does men a disservice. And, I, and quite honestly, I also see um, uh, women kind of factoring into that as well, that when men show, quote, unquote, negative emotions or sad emotions, um, we have a lot of comments sometimes that say, well, you don't get to be like that. What are you crying? for, right? I need you to be a man for me because I'm supposed to cry, right? So I think it requires all of us, uh, but particularly for men in engaging with their um, friends, their family members, their fathers, their uncles, their brothers, their cousins, to have that conversation, but also know that it's going to be uncomfortable and be able to kind of challenge yourself to do that. Quite honestly, the most, the most times that I see men in my practice is when they come through couples counseling. Yep. That's usually how I see men. Um, I'll rarely see, I'll rarely have male clients um, who reach out to me for individual care, but they come through um, coming with women in their lives. So if that's also the avenue to get these conversations, I also employ women to bring male friends here, right? These are, yes, come with your girlfriends, but bring other people, bring other men who you know to be part of this conversation. And also, we just need to go where they are, right? Mm -hmm. So to brag on one of my mentees, there's a medical student at Morehouse School of Medicine who is holding these conversations in barbershops. Barbershops. Right? Mm -hmm. That's where they are. So go where they are and have those conversations there. Thank you. Next question. Hi. Uh, my name is Kene Corder, and this is a great question to follow up with because I was going to ask you about financial therapy. I'm a counselor, and about 60% of my practice is male, but I specialize in financial therapy. So that might be part of it. Sometimes it's the conversation. If you get them in to talk about anger or finances, then they'll talk about those other things. But my question, I just wanted to bring that up to answer the gentleman's question. It might be the subject that you're getting them to talk about, and then they can talk about other things. My question is around financial therapy. What has been done, or where would you say we need to go when it comes to financial therapy? As a counselor, I specialize in hypnotherapy to help people get through the trauma that they have in financial therapy. For example, both my parents got laid off in the same year. We went from being upper middle class to somewhere below that, which I didn't have a sense of that when I was 18 years old, but that changed my life. Um, and it was some grief around there because my parents started saying no when they used to say yes to everything, but it was a change in my life. And so mentally, we didn't go to counseling, but now that I'm a financial therapist, I wish that we had counseling. I know how to help kids, but also the adults through something like this. So what would anybody on the panel say about financial therapy and what we can do more in the community? So a, a sense of autonomy is important, mm -hmm. right? And money is sort of the medium for how you get things that you need. And so there certainly is a whole literature around poverty, particularly for children and adolescents, being toxic to the developing brain even. Um, once you get past that threshold where basic needs are consistently met, you don't see as much of that, but certainly we know poverty can be, can be dangerous for people. Um, I really do think there is more of a conversation to be had around financial empowerment and autonomy and mental health. Um, because if you are working in a place where you're constantly de dealing with microaggressions and this feels like the only job you can get and this is how you pay your bills and how you feed your children, you have a choice of we plunge into a different socioeconomic status or I continue to deal with these things, right? And so I do think 
Um, there are ways that being uh, more intentional financially, putting yourself in a position where you have more autonomy over your life and over your finances um, can be helpful from a mental health standpoint. I, I think sometimes there, there um, are challenges around what people view as possible for them, um, especially when you start to talk about younger people. So what I hear often is, Miss Tracy, that's white people's lives. You know, I was poor, my mama was poor, my grandma poor, you know, like I can't see any further. So when you start to do the smaller things, because I think sometimes you know, all of us with, you know, all of our nice clothes and degrees, like, I deal with young people that sofa surf. They're, they're not homeless. If you ask them, do you have a home, the answer is, oh, yeah. And I'll be like, oh, well, do you have a key? Oh, no, my grandma won't give me a key. I have to wait on the porch till my grandma mm -hmm. come home to let me in, mm -hmm. which is the definition of homelessness, right? Mm -hmm. But getting them to understand that, you know, you don't make bills not to pay them. You know, like, because there's a, there's a concept, you, you make bills, I, I never intend to pay them because that's white people stuff. You know, so getting the simplest of things in terms of understanding that, you know, saving isn't having $100,000 in the bank, it's having 100. You know, most catastrophic problems happen as a result of a $500 bill, right? So if you got $500 in the bank, when that medical bill hits or that catastrophic thing hits, you can, you can weather that because you got a little bit of cushion. So I think sometimes getting people to realize that the, the importance is understanding what's good for you. Most of us are one paycheck away from the street, whether we make you know $3,000 a month or whether we make 300. But that kind of information helps people make better decisions. Thank you. Um, so, uh, my name is Sultan Sims. Um, I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist. Some people know me as Dr. Sims. Um, and uh, to the gentleman who asked a question in the back, it was so funny. You asked that question, and right at that moment, it was going through my mind that our panelists are mostly women, uh, for the most part. We got a strong male up there. We got the chief up there. And that is so important to have you present and to listen to you talk about your emotions as you're dealing with your job. And, and let me just stand up. Black men psychiatrists exist. We're, we're here. There aren't enough of us, but for we that. do exist. And Dr. Um, Sims is currently the president of the Georgia Psychiatric Physician Association. Yeah, and right? he's being very modest. So, um, so many things. We, um, so many great themes and topics we've touched on today. One thing that I think may be valuable to talk a little bit about is this concept of trauma-informed care and um, how uh, we're able, those who are mental health professionals, we don't all kind of get an equal education and training on every single thing. So yes, go see your psychiatrist. He may not, he or she may not have this special extra trauma-informed care, but they know a lot. But I think there are people who may do better than me, who've had a little bit more training than me. I know with my company, we're gonna sponsor a trauma-informed care training in the fall. But can you talk a little bit about trauma-informed care and, and maybe there'll be some value from, from that yeah, discussion? Tell us what it is and how do we access it? 
So for me, trauma-informed care is cultural competency, cultural agility. Um, one of the, as I mentioned earlier, workshops that we facilitate is a cultural comp um, agility workshop that talks about um, class, cultural and linguistics um, culture and microaggressions. We talk about the difference between dialogue and, de and debate, and there is a difference between the two. We talk about respecting other um, cultures, even classism as well. And often what I find um, throughout my journey as a practitioner is, is, is how the system, trying to, trying to fit into a system that doesn't fit us. So if we have a cultural competent staff or system, then for me that leads to better treatment. And when you have better treatment, that's gonna lead to a better group of people. So for me, everything results back to that. Not to dismiss my education and everything that I've learned or psychiatrists and psychologists, because we're all a very necessary part of, of the system of care that exists. But we have to get back to fully identifying who we are, being okay with that, and making sure we are accommodating the needs of who we are. I want Dr. To, Abrams. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I want to add to that that there are um, two points, one related to, to school systems and kind of trauma-informed schools that we're seeing now, as well as mm -hmm. what trauma-informed care can look like um, in clinical spaces or kind of um, uh, private practices. And trauma-informed care, um, to me, has always looked like a way in which you can view a person as a kind of product of systems, right, that they're in. Um, but again, not having that, not being so stuck and kind of so rigid in the patterns of this is what trauma looks like and these are the only criteria that we will use to kind of view you as a result of kind of different experiences that you have had, right? So oftentimes clinically, we'll say kind of big T, little t trauma, right? So big T trauma are things that kind of meet these very, very specific criteria. There are these big events, um, and particularly as we see in, in this country more, um, and increasingly, unfortunately, um, when we look at school shootings, right? Though that would be considered kind of big T trauma. So now we're seeing this expanse of trauma-informed schools. Anybody heard of them? Yes. So schools where they are now um, kind of reinforcing mental health professionals and care within the schools um, from a very young age, where there are people who can have a lens on what these children are experiencing and recognizing that they might not have the language to talk about what they are experiencing. So we create a number of different services for them, right? Number one issue in trauma-informed schools is that they're white, right? And they view trauma in a very specific way. Trauma where a school shooting has happened and now we do all of this for this school and for this community. But we don't see trauma-informed schools in Chicago. We don't see trauma-informed schools, right, in Atlanta. We don't see trauma-informed schools in spaces where and children are And why is are that? Are they just not allocating resources to be racism. able to implement that? Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Short answer. Racism. It all goes back to racism. She said racism. Racism. Okay. Just, just, to, just, just to be racism, right? It all goes back to, um, again, the views and the values of what we experience and what we are just supposed to experience. I remember being in a, a staff meeting, um, me, which is common, um, being the only black colleague in the staff meeting, and it was after the Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook um, school shooting, um, and we were having this whole conversation about, um, you know, what the news reports were saying, kind of how we're responding to that, if clients were coming in talking about that, and I remember somebody saying, like, it just wasn't supposed to happen to them. I was like, who 
what's this supposed to happen to? Like, what do, you, what do you mean it wasn't supposed to happen to them and they're like, this is not supposed to happen in our communities. But again, you saying that as a white person tells me that you think that this is supposed to happen somewhere. This is supposed to happen elsewhere, but not us with either this level of socioeconomic status, we're nice people, we do this, we do this, it's, it, and we're white, right? Those are things that, that oftentimes the larger community, majority community, um, sees as those things don't happen here because we're used to hearing it over there, and we can ignore it if it happens over here, but now it's, now it's here, right? Um, so those are things that, that when we think about where trauma-informed care happens, we also need to look at the resources of the community. We also need to look at the value of the bodies in the community, and that's where you're going to see what care looks like. All right, we're gonna take two more questions, one here and the young lady in the blue. Oh, and the, three more, the young lady in the green. Hi, I'm Layla Fitzgerald, Program Manager for the Department of Behavioral Health and Development and Disabilities. I oversee the Georgia APEX program where we provide services within, within the school setting for children across the state. That's who I am. <laughs> I wanna comment on the trauma-informed around PTSD, but for our community, it's really CTSD because it's not post, it's continuously happening to them. Mm -hmm. um, Say that again. It's continuous PTSD. Um, because it's, it's not post for us, it's continuously happening. We give them therapy and we provide them these skills and uh, social skills and we send them right back into the environments that they're receiving the trauma from. So how do we educate and train those individuals who touch our students on a regular basis, whether it's the janitorial staff or the cafeteria staff or mama, mom pop store in the community that everybody knows, grandma that everybody knows, That's right. church included. Like how do we empower them to be the secondhand people after they come from you so that they have that support in the community? Because I think of individuals like those who are going, who went through Katrina and continuously go through that in Louisiana or in those flood systems or going back to the community where they saw three people get shot last night and they still are coming to school expected to learn in a normal setting. How do we empower our communities? How do we take those conversations to the, the barbershops and to the football games? And how do we infuse our men in that way? Like taking it to where they are so that most people are not going to come to a setting like this. So most people are not going to get the information off Instagram because it's not on their regular feed. So how do we take this and move this, take off our suits and ties and get deep down with the individuals who it's happening to in our communities? Uh, I think it goes back to what Dr. Vincent said. Thank you. And that means that we come out to you. So that's another component of cultural competency is that we create a safe space for all stakeholders to be able to have dialogue and conversations about those very same things. And we, um, we continue to do that and provide training. Trainings are great, but how much of us remember everything that we went to, right. So, so it's having dialogue and creating a safe space to be able to engage in that dialogue on a continuous basis. This shouldn't be something that's annually or quarterly. This is something that me and AP talked about implementing into our agency monthly, maybe at every team meeting, every all hands-on meeting. Barbershops, it's churches, mm -hmm. salons, yeah. it's going into the communities. Whatever community center there is, if there is one, it's going into those spaces because that is where the community feels safest. Right. And it's dinner tables and, yep. you know, watching the NFL and X, Y, and Z happens. Like, there are conversations to be had all around us. It's a matter of whether we pick it up or not. And I think that's why, um, you know, we take pride in, you know, we're that little engine that could at Silence to Shame, you know, and thank you, Layla, for all that you've done to support our yes, organization. Layla's you. one of our volunteers, even though she's super busy and running things at DVHDD. But, you know, we do a lot of grassroots 
you know, marketing and promotional efforts and outreach to the community. I think part of that is because I started as a street team rep. <laughs> you know, I was the young girl taking 12 inches back when records were still spinning in the clubs. <laughs> and so I essentially tried to market this movement like a rap album. You know, the same things, hand-to-hand distribution, flyers, postcards. The one thing we're trying to do more of is creating content. You know, we offer free mental health first aid training, which I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with that, but it's an eight-hour course where you can really, eight hours, I know it sounds like a long time, but it's some of the best eight hours you will spend because you really learn how to assess a loved one or even yourself if you're dealing with the signs and symptoms and learn how to get treatment. Um, So one thing we want to actually do um, if we can raise some funding for it, is to offer complimentary mental health first aid training um, to our hairdressers mm-hmm. and to the barbershops. And we wouldn't be the first state to do it, but it hasn't been implemented yet in the state of Georgia. So we want to do that. And the other um, outreach program, which I hadn't even told, um, I just got it. I don't getting ideas and thinking of things. And my staff is like, what? I want to implement um, a program called Sunday Dinner, you know, where we get a local restaurant you know, to offer up a meal for a family of maybe 20, 25 people. And we invite our families to come and we talk about things that are going on in our lives. And we will weave in the emotional health and wellness conversations. But just come have Sunday dinner, you know, and let's talk about it and let's deal with it. Finding, you know, ways, like you said, where we can meet people where we're at and and get into the community and make this conversation real. That's why we also, you know, I try to tap back into a lot of the artists and celebrities that I work with and get them to open up. We've had David Banner share on our panels, Carrie Hilson, um, so many other people, CeeLo Green, you know, that talk about what they're dealing with. And, you know, again, our kids listening to celebrities, you know, and even adults, you know, we want to see what's happening on the athlete's feed or the celebrity feed. So we're trying to infuse this conversation and normalize it more into everyday, you know, conversations. Um, the young lady in the green. Um, my name is Vic Carew. First Can you of all, hold the mic up. Um, Vic Carew. First of all, I want to say thank you, because this is necessary, timely, critical conversation that we need to have. Um, So hopefully we'll continue. My question is, how do you get someone to get help when you know they need it, Mm -hmm. they've expressed that they need it, but they can't take the next, next step? You talked about wounded healers. So how can you get someone to take that next step as you watch them spiral out of control? Great question, and thank you. Anybody want to tackle that? That's hard. It it's is. hard um, because when it comes to getting help, people especially have, if they're an adult, yeah, people have to help themselves. So it's, it is excruciating watching someone in pain. Um, and it is excruciating watching someone struggle with something, watching someone quote unquote get worse as they're navigating something. Um, when you know that there are resources there. And they might also know that there are resources there, but there's this block. Um, What you can do is continue to offer your availability and kind of offer access to you, boundaried access um, to you. The other piece of that is also recognizing what you can actually take on. And oftentimes, I recommend that um, if you are in close quarters with anybody who is um, unhealthy in a way that is beginning to affect you, that you also need to get your own support for that. Um, because you need a space to process what it's like to feel that level of helplessness. And that is really, really hard to um, experience. Um, But again, being able to offer them what you can offer them, which doesn't mean, hey, you have to do this, which doesn't mean, you know, there's this and this and kind of badgering people with it. But you can offer them resources. Um, You can share things that, again, free, local, whatever it is that you come across. Um, But by also saying, hey, I'm here and I'm accessible when you need to talk. 
but pulling away from you need to do this because that's the main thing that pushes people away when you start telling them what they need to do um, versus I'm here for when you need to talk. Oftentimes people need an ear. They don't need you to tell them what to do next and where they need to go and that you got the provider and that you're ready to make the phone call. They need to know that somebody will listen to them and validate them in whatever it is that they're experiencing um, in a non-judgmental way. And that's usually what opens them up. Space is what opens people up to get their own help, not telling them what to do. Yeah, and then kind of like in a subtle way, feeding them resources and information. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if the, if the situation in their case is more severe, mm -hmm. right, and they have a psychotic break or an episode, you know, then of There's course, crisis. yeah, you need to deal with it from a crisis perspective and make sure that they get hospitalized and get the care that they need. Um, if you ever have to call 911, tell them you need a CIT trained officer. officer. Okay. Um, that's a crisis in training. You should really, everyone should learn about CIT and the training um, and what that means. Um, but we, you know, certainly can talk more afterwards about that. Thank you. Hi, Hi. my name is Sharon Green, and I actually just ran out um, because I got a phone call. And I'm being fully transparent so you all understand the conversation and the question that I'm going to have. My oldest son is 23, and he's bipolar. And so I'm always fully present. Right. And so I'm sitting here in this conversation with you all, and he called, and I ran out. Um, because there have been times that I've ran out, and um, he was on the verge of committing suicide. There have been times that he has uh, called, and he's been manic. There's been times that he's called um, and he has just completely given up. He's a neuroscientist. Oh, wow. Absolutely brilliant. And um, he actually works for the number one brain trauma uh, research center at the University of Pennsylvania. And he sits there and he says, and he's a black male with locks, and he says, they don't know who I am. They're studying who they think I am, and they don't. And so um, I've cried, I have cried, I've prayed, and I've just been fully present. And sometimes I just hang up the phone because I have to protect myself because I have two other sons. Mm -hmm. But I ran out, literally, because his picture came up. And so I share that to say and ask you all, um, because I found out he, was, uh, he attempted suicide um, on social media. Oh, no. No, it's a great thing. And so I'm asking you all as practitioners, how are you all educating yourselves to reach young people where they are? Because I don't believe social media is a negative, and I don't believe that they don't have a village. Um, he was walking uh, down the street, and he was getting ready to jump. And one of his friends saw him and was like, yo, man, how you doing? And then he posted live and everybody started immediately I love you you're good I love you you're good and he said to me I did not know I was loved so I'm asking you all and I'm the, the other piece is is that I grew up in an era of France Fanon mm. Naeem Akbar mm -hmm. and so I understand the premise mm -hmm. is the middle passage and acknowledging the trauma starts from there exactly. and now we are generationally denying like, oh, something's wrong with you, but how are you all incorporating or willing to incorporate or educate yourself to understand where the premise of this is and it's now um, DNA predisposed. And just like sickle cell trait, if you have four children, 
you're probably going to have one or two with DNA. And do you all address it from a genetic perspective as opposed to just you're going to be all right, you know, that trauma. No, that trauma started when white people brought us here. Right. The generational. Through the trans. Are we having that conversation? Because I think we're missing a piece when we don't want to hear our kids. And that frontal lobe is a serious thing. And weed helps them, right? We don't understand that. But we, what we have to say to them, you can't smoke weed at 12 and 16 because it's damaging your cells. Are we having that kind of conversation? Because they can hear it. Because I'm telling you, I'm not, and everybody's child is brilliant. I believe that. I believe that. But when I tell you Ezekiel Dao ain't no joke, and neuroscience, he, he went to Exeter, if y'all don't know what Philip Exeter, and he went to Swarthmore. And then he's now at UPenn, and he's like, these crackers don't know what they're talking about. And I have demanded him to become a psychiatrist. No, see, that's what we don't understand. We have to look at our children and ourselves, and we have to put ourselves in positions of authority. So, and it's traumaful, but I've told him, you got to, you don't have a choice because your brothers need you and your sisters need you. And there's only two and three of y'all in a room. And if he's not having that conversation from experience, as well as a scientist, ain't nobody else can have that conversation. That's why I was applauding you. It's not their problem. Right. It's our problem. And are we, are y'all sitting out reading, France Fanon? So I will say it's not a standard part of the psychiatry training curriculum. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, right. um, they done gave me a program. Yep, so, and her magazine. So yeah, in my program, we have James Baldwin like on the wall, right? Because I, and I agree with you, there's a certain degree to which we are gonna have to take ownership of this, yes. right? There is only so much energy I'm willing to expend at this point begging other people to care because there's a clear lack of caring, right? And, I, and there are only 2% of us, right? But I do think there are enough of us that if we were intentional about building up the workforce, and encouraging each other and pouring into undergrads and high school students and whoever who wants to go into this field that we can make a difference. I have kids find me on Google and say, I wanna to talk to you about my high school project and I schedule them, yep. right? Because we have to be that example for other people. So there are people who are doing that work and I have, we actually share this person because <laughs> she has a couple and I have her as an individual. Mm. This woman who was chronically suicidal until she was 43 years old. And we started working together and she had people tell her she had multiple personality disorder and she had all these issues and she had trauma. She had bipolar too. We treated her, we do therapy. And she's like, I feel like I'm alive for the first time in my mid forties, right? But she needed a black therapist who could talk to her about the black experience in an affirming way. And it took until she was in her mid forties to have that. So that work can happen but we need more of us sort of reaching back and making sure that it does. Yes. And that's one thing to Raji P. Henson's foundation, um, why she formed it is because she's going to provide scholarships for people of color to actually go into this field so we can do the work. Because again, we know other folks aren't gonna care. 
about our plight and what has happened and what's going on from a generational perspective and how it affects our children. And I, I think you're right. I think, you know, there are some positive aspects about social media. We have seen negative aspects with some people where some children or adults weren't that kind. And, and you know, I'm grateful that your son's friends were kind to mm -hmm. him when that happened, even for me when I went through my own depression and suicidal ideation, you know, I utilize social media. I'm not a millennial, but I utilized it, and people were actually very kind to me and started opening up and talking and sharing, and particularly, you know, persons of color. And so, you know, I think being able to use that in the right way can help our community as well. Two more, say, really quickly, particularly um, with the younger generation, that we have to be willing to listen to narratives that we don't agree with, right. that we don't understand. Um, that make us feel uncomfortable, we have to be willing to challenge ourselves to tolerate the distress of that because that's exactly where to meet them is their truth, right? Because once they're able to see that, oh, I can say these things out loud, that's when they are willing to say more. But as soon as they hear, you can't feel that way, you can't think that way, you can't do this, no, 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 they shut down, they go, to, they go somewhere else to have these conversations right. or they stop having these conversations. We have to be willing to tolerate the distress of not understanding them but still being willing to listen to them. Okay, quickly. Okay, sorry about that. I'm uh, Kristen Carruthers. I'm Hold your mic up. Hi, sorry. I'm Kristen Carruthers. I'm a clinical psychologist as well, but I specifically work with children and adolescents. Hey girl, and working? one of, I know, I, I'm going to talk to y'all after. So <laughs> This is what we do. Like, um, so one of the things that I thought was important for us to talk about is adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about is there a level of trauma that's acceptable in our community, I want us to know that there has been research that's been done that has linked the number of adverse childhood experiences you've experienced to your health and your mortality. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so the study was originally done with white people um, and mortality rates were high for them. They redid the study in Philadelphia with black population, rates tripled in terms of your diabetes, your heart, heart disease, et cetera. Dr. Vincent can probably speak more, you all can speak more specifically about that. So I would encourage everybody to check out, um, there's a TED talk by Nadine Burke Harris. She is an MD who talks about adverse childhood experiences and how they impact your mental health and your mortality and how for people of color we experience those disproportionately. In terms of what's going on in schools, there are trauma-informed, culturally responsive programs out there. I consult for one that's by a black psychologist, Dr. Isaiah Pickens, called the Bridge Program. So I go back to Chicago where I'm from and work with some teachers in an all-white setting who are having difficulty with the black children they teach because they are culturally insensitive, but they think because they are teaching children who are dissimilar and who Racist. come from a different background, <laughs> right, that they get it. Um, so the resource for that is the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Um, and so when you said DBD, I'm going to start working for y'all. DBHTD. Yeah, I started a job there, yeah. But there's, um, that's a great website, nctsn.org. They got this. Thank you, you need to be up here with us. Uh, the final question is brother in the hat, and then we have to close out because our gracious hosts um, have us on the books till nine. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you for you all uh, sharing this powerful information. We have a powerful group of people in the audience and on the stage. It's like a talented tenth up here. And what I'd like us to do is I'm proposing that we uh, uh, create a TGS circle um, with the clinicians. I'm a licensed professional counselor myself, providing wraparound program for schools, uh, my wife and I. But I really think what we need to do is take this talent, take these skills, social justice and advocacy is a huge part of what we do. 
we need to figure out how we can uh, take this stuff to the streets so that we can transform our community. There's some heavy stuff going on in our community and it's not gonna be solved right here, right now. We've gotta work. Oh, that's right. But at least we start in a conversation. Right, We're that's right. Start somewhere. So I'm proposing the TGS circle. If we have enough of us that are open, yes, we can absolutely. periodically come together and figure out how we can advocate and, and, um, and work together to transform our community. I love that. Thank you so right. much. Absolutely. Quickly, can each panelist tell people where they, you can, they can find you? We'll start with Dr. Vincent. Um, oh, yeah. I have a magazine called Ourselves Black that, uh, Ayana, thank you. Um, but it's about black mental health broadly defined that talks about these issues, these social justice issues like gentrification, financial empowerment, and how they impact uh, black mental health. So you can find me there, but I am uh, at Morehouse School of Medicine um, at Chris 180 um, and have a practice uh, in Virginia Highlands called the Lorio Site Group. Dr. Abrams? Yes, um, so you can find me, uh, my practice name is Ascension Behavioral Health. A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N, -E Behavioral Health. I am on Instagram at Dr. Underscore Ayana Underscore A. That's D-R Underscore A-Y-A-N-N-A Underscore A. Um, and also on Facebook at Ascension Behavioral Health. Not so strong. Oh, and I also have started some. So um, I started a platform with a colleague and my best friend psychiatrist um, up in Charlottesville called Not So Strong, where... Our focus is on um, improving black women's mental health through mm -hmm. creating a space for them to tell vulnerable stories about themselves, That's um, awesome. which creates community, which creates access to other women, um, and also decreases mental health crises and distress. Amazing. It's called Not So Strong. Not So Strong. Lakeisha. That is also on Instagram at Not So Strong. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can find me at Chris180. Um, I also have a consulting firm. It's TK Smith and Consultants, um, where we come out and provide I work with both in Partners, who is founded by Dr. Deidre Hawkins. She's also a clinical psychologist. Um, but we come out and we provide some of these very same type of venues. Um, and one of the things we incorporate within the community, and we have a movement we have right now is called the, the Decatur Dinners, which stems from the Chicago Dinners. And I don't know if you all are familiar with that, but that's very impactful from, from the African-American community in Chicago. I'm sure most of you from who are from Chicago is very, very much familiar with yep, the Chicago dinners and how it has helped bridge the gap um, in, in our communities with law enforcement, behavioral health, and the individuals that we serve. Tracy? Uh, you can find me at, on Facebook. Uh, I think it's under Tracy Jones at uh, facebook.com um, or at uh, tracy.jones uh, AIDS Health. I work with my colleague, Amara, that spoke earlier, and we um, are interested in supporting um, work around um, HIV and AIDS prevention and the black experience. So if there are interesting projects that you have, or um, in some cases, if you're looking for funding um, as it relates to people living with HIV and AIDS or AIDS prevention and youth, um, please give us a, a shout out. Thank you, Vance. He's at amara.candidate. Uh, at AIDSHealth.org. So, um, because I'm probably the oldest on the panel, you can't find me anywhere, but <laughs> our public information officer right there, she has uh, a website for Raise the City Jamil. of Atlanta Department of Correction. <laughs> we have a stream. 
Um, my daughter be upset because I just got on MySpace the other day. I haven't seen. Oh, um, is that the reason why I didn't see anybody on there? Silly. I was on Facebook. See, I'm, I'm still behind. Okay, say that one ATL more time. ATL Corrections. See, I haven't been able to find that yet either. Thank you, Vance. Um, and just quickly, um, I am Shanti Das. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Shanti Das 404 and at Twitter um, at Shanti Das 404. Facebook is just for my personal life. So if you send me a Facebook request and I don't respond, it's all love, but you're not getting added. Because uh, that's, that's my own personal self-care and wellness on Facebook. Yes, um, but for our organization, please follow us on Instagram at Silence the Shame. On Twitter and Facebook, it's at Silence TH Shame. We post a lot of helpful articles on Facebook, things that you can forward out and share. Um, please also um, subscribe our, to our podcast. We have over 28 episodes up. Some of the folks on this, uh, the stage have been featured on our podcast. We interview clinicians, um, celebrities, influencers, people with lived experiences. Um, so we, if you have an idea for a topic for a podcast and would like to be on, please let us know. Um, but you can find our podcast on Google, iTunes, um, and SoundCloud. Um, also, um, it's, it's Silence to Shame. Yeah, and we just launched this new um, content um, piece called Like a Million Thoughts. So you know how you say, oh, I have like a million things I need to do today. So we want to encourage people to upload video content, and you can start your video, video by saying, oh, I have like a million thoughts I want to share about depression. Or I have like a million thoughts I want to share about being black and dealing with trauma in America. And just utilize that hashtag like a million thoughts. So we're starting to curate more content um, for our community with that. Um, consider um, coming to one of our Silence to Shame self-care Saturday events. Again, they're free to the community. We do them every other week. Um, also consider donating. We're still the little engine that could. <laughs> Um, we're grateful for our partners like the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, and we're going to continue these community conversations. Also, wonderful partnership with DBHGD. Um, we just finished one year doing programming around faith leaders in behavioral health. So guess what, y'all? We're going into the churches. We've already done workshops in Augusta and Macon and Savannah and Athens. And so um, I, I think we're, we're almost there with the second year prayerfully you know, God willing, and we're going to take it a step further and train some of um, our pastors and deacons, you know, around behavioral health so we can talk to them about learning how to talk to the congregation, congregation and community. Because oftentimes, you know, we want to go and talk to people in church, and we got to teach them not to be judgmental, to keep that door open, right? And so come with an open mind, because I believe hashtag Jesus and therapy is a good thing. Yes. It's not an either or. Um, I don't know if I'm forgetting anything. Consider, you know, getting our T-shirts in the back. And also, I'm sorry? Oh, okay. I wrote a book. I don't have any copies here, but um, it's called Silencing My Shame. I am an author, and I'm a speaker. I'm excited to announce that I'll be speaking at a European mental health conference as the only person of color giving a keynote in Ireland in October. Um, so we are taking this conversation around the world. Um, very, very humbled and grateful to be able to do this work. Um, so many lovely faces in the audience. Thank you, um, Sultan, for continuing to be a huge support. Thank you, Theo. Thank you, Layla. 
Um, thank you to my staff. You guys are amazing. I couldn't do this without you. Thank you to George, our photographer. Most of all, thank you to the amazing team at the Gathering Spot um, for always understanding the importance of, you know, they curate so much wonderful content, but they also understand the importance of our emotional health and wellness, right? Because these athletes and entertainers and entrepreneurs, they couldn't do what they do unless they take care of their emotional health and wellness. So we're trying to bring this conversation um, to the forefront um, of culture and make sure you take the postcards that we left with you. We gave some great self-care tips, but again, I'm honored. Let's give it up for our amazing panel. Before you leave, take a picture over to your right um, and, you know, hashtag silence to shame, post about the event, consider being a part of the content like I mentioned. Get home safe and continue to silence the shame. <laughs>